It's a fact. Life can be hard. And dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience and can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. I'm Sinead, and I'm joined by my colleague Elle. Hi. And my colleague Brian. Hello. We're part of Positive Group, a team who uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the question, how do you keep persevering in the face of continuous adversity? Through the story of the athlete David Smith. To really find out who you are as a person, you've got to go to some dark places sometimes. That was the start of a journey that that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy uh, and one that has a huge paradox because probably the greatest things in my life came from having a tumour. So in this episode, we're going to meet David Smith, who is just the most phenomenal athlete across many different sports. I suppose just to kick off, I I certainly love sport. I love exercise. I find it such a good way of managing my energy levels, managing my well-being levels. But what about you guys, Elle or Brian? Are you sports enthusiasts? I think growing up for me, sport played a huge part in my life. So um, to quote my mother, she thought I'd be a juvenile delinquent if I hadn't found sport. (laughs) So um, for me, sport was an amazing discipline. It's a great source of social support and friends. And I just absolutely loved it. And it was my sole drive and purpose through most of my teens. What about you, Brian? Talented sportsman, I bet. (laughs) I wouldn't say talented. (laughs) Um, You know, I I wasn't uh, the easiest youngster, uh, I think, either to parent or or for school teachers. But I loved rugby. I was pretty good at rugby and I played representative rugby at schoolboy level. I think playing a team sport was particularly important for Mm me. And that sense of connection and collegiality which I've always enjoyed enormously and wherever I work if I can feel that it's it nourishes my spirit Mm -hmm. and I think it also gave me a source of some self-esteem when scholastically I wasn't performing particularly well. I was uh, the polar opposite at school. I was not interested in sport. I was one of those that's always forgetting her PE kit, <laughs> always puffing on my inhaler. I was just not interested at all. And it wasn't until I started exploring my own types of sport in adulthood that yeah. I really got into it and I kind of got quite infected by it. Have either of you had the opportunity to do any sports psychology or to, to work with any athletes? I mean, we had a we had a sports psychologist working at Positive for a while who actually brought a very interesting dynamic to this. And I think uh, sports psychologists have looked at visualization uh, as a very powerful mechanism. And most most top sportsmen now have uh, have their own psychologists. And uh, visualization is an incredibly powerful mechanism. And it's only relatively recently that this has started to become incorporated into clinical psychology. Mm. And we're now realizing the importance of visualization and uh, imagery. And I think it's a very potent uh, source of helping helping people with psychological problems and links to resilience. Uh, because if you can visualize uh, your journey and what you're going to do, that can be really powerful. 
So David's story is an incredible and inspiring story in many ways. His health problems and how he's overcome these to come back time and time again. He's always evolving. He's always moving forward. And I think what I'm interested in is how can his story inspire others to keep going and persisting in the face of challenge? I'm David Smith. I'm a Great Britain athlete who's currently on the British cycling team. As a child, I would love to say I was the model child, but I think if you asked my school teachers, they would tell you the exact opposite. Um, I, was, I was pretty wild. I could have easily went off on the wrong path, but thankfully I found sport and it gave me a passion and a purpose. It wasn't that I wasn't interested in school, I just found it a little bit boring, and I think that was possibly growing up in a little village called Aviemore in the highlands of Scotland. You know, we had this huge great outdoors and I, I didn't want to spend too much time sat in a classroom learning things. I, I wanted to be out skiing, water skiing, climbing, everything that I could do. Uh, and then, you know, I, I fell in love with karate. I guess that was my, probably out of all the sports I did as a kid, that was my biggest love. I didn't want to compete against people. I didn't want to win medals or anything. It was just I wanted to see how far I could push my mind and my body just to see how far I could take it. I was born with talipaces, which is also known as clubfoot. Talipaces is when babies in, in the womb, the, the, the feet kind of sit wrong. My feet were turned in, so the left foot was slightly rotated and the right foot was extremely rotated. What they did is they, they sort of reset the, the bones in my feet, put them into special plaster casts and special boots. So the first few years of life were very challenging. It didn't really cause any problems. I could walk fine. I, I remember going to like special shoe shops and like they were trying to get me in these special shoes and stuff as a kid, you know, and I wanted the smart trainers and I was like, oh, you have to wear these shoes. I was like, I'll wear those shoes. <laughs> when I first realized it was a problem was when I was in Japan doing karate. I was about 16 and I couldn't get into the positions that the instructors wanted me to get into. I was constantly getting hit with this wooden stick called a bokken across my back. The insanity was, you know, bend your knee, bend your knee, and I, I just couldn't get into that position. When I came back, that's when I got into athletics, and that's when I really started to realize that the foot was a huge problem. So I never really intended to be an athlete. My first dream was to go to the Air Force as a physical training instructor. I started to follow that path, and, and things didn't go quite right. Didn't know what I was going to do. And I went to work on a building site and they just happened to be an athletics coach working with me on the building site. And we were next to a running track and his coach said to me, oh, you know, you should go along and have a go. It was in the middle of December and there was like snow on the track and they'd cleared a few lanes under the stadium lights. There was a real buzz about it. So I, I turned up, told the coach that I wanted to, to be a sprinter. And he said, just run around the track as fast as you can, one lap. I'd never done that, never been on a running track in my life. So I ran around, I think it was like 51 seconds. And I remember falling over and it was like someone had shot me with a gun at 300 meters. I remember lying in the disabled toilet floor, throwing up into the toilet for a good 30 minutes. And you know, it wasn't glamorous. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is, yeah, I love this. This is great. I started to run 49 seconds for 400 in training. And I could see the trajectory. I could see where it goes. You know, you put the sessions in and you just get faster each year until I guess you hit your plateau of where, you know, where you can get to. 
started to become a bit of an obsession then. And I guess that's where it all started to grow, was around about uh, 1999, 2000. The athletics was going great. I started to experience like the sharp pains. It's like someone was sticking a knife into the back of my legs at like three o'clock in the morning. And I remember going to the doctor and saying to him, like, I don't, I don't feel great. And he said, oh, you're fine, you're just doing too much sport. And I started to have all these other symptoms that were neurological symptoms. I was always tired, I was always in pain. And I, and I battled away with this for a few years, but I just, I was getting frustrated that I just couldn't run without being in agony. I met a physio just by pure chance and she worked in Paralympic sport. And we were looking at my foot and she said, this foot classifies you into Paralympic sport. There's no one ever told you this. That chance meeting and that chance conversation actually saved my life. So I went to an open day, got on a rowing machine, did a test, pulled a score that was um, decent enough to, to be picked up by the talent coaches. And before I knew it, I'd moved to Caversham and I was training full-time with the British rowing team. The first five months were great. It was a real shock to the body, but, um, but it was an amazing experience. Went on and won a World Championships. It was probably after the World Championships, I just started to feel like things weren't great. I started to go and see more doctors. It was just unbearable to, to get out of bed. The physio I was working with at the time said, you know what, let's just get you a scan. And then met the doctors there. These guys just diagnosed these so often, it just rolled off their tongue. You have a tumor in your spine. I didn't really see the magnitude of what that actually meant because I was so focused on my sport. And it wasn't until the day of surgery, sitting in the hospital room, put on the hospital gown, had the crazy socks on. And I was like, well, they're going to come in this room any minute now and say, right, let's go. And they're going to cut my neck open. And I was going from like no experience of surgery to life-threatening major surgery. You get in there and you jump onto the bed and you have these people all talking to you about random stuff. I guess it, it's, it's going so fast. And I just wanted to pause time. And I remember stopping, just thinking, oh my God, what if this is the last thing I ever see is this room? I might never wake up from this. Just as I was having that thought, the anesthetic started to run in and then, then you just go blank. The next time you wake in your eyes up, you're a different person. Originally, it was quite straightforward. I thought, Gareth Hospital, go back, I'll do all my rehabilitation and it'll be fine. When I got sent home, I woke up one morning, basically, I had like a partial paralysis from the neck down, so you could kind of move, but not really move. It was extremely scary. And my mum was wanting to call an ambulance. I was like, I don't call, I'll phone my friend, phone my friend. So before I knew it, I was in his car, fighting for my life, and I arrived at the, the hospital door and there was a wheelchair waiting for me. And I just, fell out of the car into this wheelchair. What I didn't know at that time is that I was hemorrhaging in, inside my spinal cord. So I ended up in hospital for over a month. That was a tough time. I was really starting to find out who David Smith was. Was I just going to back away from this and go and become a hermit the rest of my life and blame the world and ask why me? Or or was I going to you know, say, okay, this is, this is a challenge. It's an opportunity just to start rebuilding now. 
like three, four hours a day of visualizing, maybe on the water, visualize my body moving, trying to get the, the pathways and everything to connect. I just set an intention every day, a little goal. First goal in the morning was like, okay, get out of bed, that's a goal. Have a shower, that's a goal. We're getting these little goals, which were then giving you a real boost of confidence. There was times that, yeah, okay, the goal was a little bit stretched and I'd fall over, but I'd just pick myself back up and go again. Every day for the first four or five weeks at home, I drew a whole calendar of every hour. 0700 wake up. By 0800, I've had to have my shower. By 0900, I've had to have my breakfast. And I stuck to that because it would have been easy just to sit and watch TV all day. But I was so driven, sport doesn't stop and wait for you. That it was only two years to the game. So if I was going to be there, I, I had to work. And within six months, I was back in, in a boat. The first session was was horrendously cold on Henley, but it was the most amazing feeling. I still remember the sound of the blades going into the water and the boat moving under. It was a massive difference to hearing the, the noise of a drip or the, the constant beeping in the hospital. All of a sudden I was on this river and it was silent bar the noise of the boat going across it. You don't have to be an Olympic champion and roll like Redgrave to enjoy that. For the first time I was in control. From that day on Henley to London 2012, it was it was a brutally hard journey. You had to fight from the spot on the boat. So we had to go through a series of trials, which was probably about, I think it was like 10 months after surgery. And I remember winning the seat race, but I, I was like 0.5 of a second or something crazy. Then the World Championships in Bled were the qualification for, for London. Before you know it, London comes around and I'm sat on the start line of the final of, of the games, thinking to myself, okay, wow, this has been a pretty incredible journey to get here. I ain't leaving here with anything less than a gold medal. We were down it by, by quite a bit to the Germans and then just the last 500 meters, we found something that they didn't have. I remember just taking that last stroke and I thought that's the last probably ever stroke I'll ever take in a boat and collapsing, looking up at the sky, hearing all these people screaming and 20-odd thousand, 30,000 people were screaming and waving Union Jacks. And I remember looking over to the German boat and they were, they were sort of slumber in their posture and I was like, oh, we've, we've done it. It was just all really bizarre and couldn't quite believe it was happening. It was just, it was just all too much to take. The next six months were mad because everyone wanted a piece of you. And you, you, want, you want to share it with people, you know, you want to go and share it with, with schools and, and people who have supported you. But what you, what you don't realise is that you're not actually investing in your own health at that point. And eventually I just ended up burnt out. I told Rowan I was done, I didn't want to go back. So I went home and at that point I wasn't really thinking about what next or anything. I just lived every day for that day. I found a bike in my garage and I'd never really done that much cycling on it. I thought, oh, you know what, I, I'll go out and just do a ride, ride round the, the local village loop. Went round, I thought, this is quite this is quite good fun. And then I just started going out every day. Maybe I could be a cyclist and go to Rio. It's a realistic target. I, I really love this sport. The British team put me on an academy programme Little did I know that my tumour had regrown and I was about to face another battle. 
was um, like reliving the whole thing all over again. Sort of get all your affairs in order, get everything set, planned, and then turn up for, for surgery. I went into the surgery, came out, again, 10 days in hospital, I was in a wheelchair, I had to learn to walk again, had to go through everything all over again. I lost all the weight and power, you know, slowly started the rehabilitation from just getting out of bed and having a shower. So it was a complete repeat of everything I did before because I knew the formula works, so I just do it again. Suffer in the moment, but knowing that there's a timeline on that suffering. Within three months, I was in Spain on a bike, did over a thousand miles. It was like fantastic. Reels are, are definitely a realistic goal. And again, I'd managed to put my body through absolute hell to go from that hospital bed back to, to racing for Great Britain. Just listening to the start of David's story there, there's so much to focus in on, really. Given his start in life and that kind of early adversity that came with having clubfoot and having to adapt, I just wonder how that has set him instead for the future things that come his way. So we know that we develop kind of core beliefs about ourselves and our abilities very early in life based on the circumstances that we experience, the challenges that we experience. And what I'm really interested in for David is how he views challenges, how he processes them, responds to them. And I think with having that start in life, he perhaps has developed a core belief about himself that he can overcome things, that there is a positive way to look at things and that he's going to kind of get on with things and give it his absolute best. I don't know for you, Brian, what was kind of what, what's been sticking out for you from the first part of David's story? I think he did something very early on in his life where he talks about not being great at school or mm -hmm. bored at school. Mm -hmm. And then finding something with the karate that he really loved and then not being able to do his karate and then getting into the athletics. And I think that message he gave when he said, you know, he was lying on the floor of the disabled bathroom, vomiting for half an hour. And his next words were, I think, extraordinary. He said, I just loved this. I loved it, yeah. I loved it. Uh -huh. Now, I think what then happens for David is that he starts to associate being able to do this with a challenge, a goal, and that ability to go through pain because it'll get him to where he wants to get to. Mm -hmm. And there's a concept in pain called neurosensitization. And this is really relevant because if you interpret your pain as threatening, damaging, going to ruin your life, you actually turn the volume up on the pain. And you can see that on serial fMRI scans in the brain and the thalamus and in the descending tracts in the spinal cord. So what happens is that it, it, you get more and more sensitive to the stimulus because the stimulus is aversive. The brain wants to pay attention to something that is very aversive and dangerous and frightening. So it amplifies the pain because it's relevant to your success and life and what's going to happen, which then makes you more frightened, which then amplifies the pain. And this is called neurosensitization. And these people can end up with a, a condition known as allodynia, where you just touch their skin lightly with a piece of cotton wool and it creates severe pain because they have neurosensitized. The reverse of this is the concept of habituation, whereby you feel pain, but you see it as something that isn't harmful, isn't dangerous, 
an action you can cope with or deal with, or even that you want. It's not what happens, it's the view you take of it. And I think what we see with David, interestingly, is that once he gets back into his training, he sees pain as his friend, not a threat. And that's a really important cognitive mechanism. Absolutely. And I think what's really interesting as well is he asked the question, kind of, who is David Smith? And I think that's a really, really interesting question to ask himself, because actually he's gone very deep with that question. And when we're thinking about this, this concept of resilience, the belief that we hold about ourselves and our ability and our ability to overcome forms a huge part in determining how we respond to the challenges that come our way. I don't know, Elle, if you have any thoughts on that or any, anything else that you've picked up from David. I was really interested in the sort of determination and personal resilience in this story. People set themselves goals all the time. And when David seems to set himself a goal, he has this real commitment to the goal. It's not just behavioural. It's not just linked to his sport. It's very self-directed and positive. It's something that I think is just so rare to see at such an extreme but equally he's quite human with it so he sort of explains how the process of getting there it's very kind of adaptive what he does being so solution focused he's incredibly focused isn't he so when he puts his mind to something he he achieves it absolutely and I think for David what's coming across is this has now become a learned pathway He has a cognitive plan. So he has thoughts and images Mm -hmm. about where he wants to get to and what he wants to achieve. But he also has a behavioral plan. And I think this is really, really important because a lot of us can have the ideas, but don't do the action. It's actually combining the talk with the action. So it's walking the talk. And what David does repeatedly is walk the talk. It's funny after you've been diagnosed twice because then we do all the performance testing. And I remember every performance test, I had this little voice inside my head saying, well, this is all great, but what if your tumour comes back? And I was always trying to silence that voice. I was like, how do you silence that voice? Um, so I do all sorts of cognitive therapy and visualisation and all sorts of different stuff. That voice was always there. And the deep subconscious would always come out and say, oh, you know, what if we, what if we get diagnosed again? And, so all the planning was going out. I did the whole World Cup circuit. And then I had a scan in September 2015, which showed that the tumour had grown, basically. And I remember having the conversation with it, and I just said, let's just get this thing out. We go ahead with the surgery. It was a 10-hour surgery. The surgeon was very aggressive. You know, when I woke up from that surgery and I was paralyzed completely down one side of my body. I remember lying in ICU and thinking, I'd done it every other time. I'm going to ride for Great Britain again and I'm going to cycle across the Alps on a road called the Grandes Alps that I'd seen on 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 a poster. That's my goals and that's what's going to get me out of this hospital bed. You know, they'd come and they'd be like, don't worry, you're going to be fine. Your arm will move, your leg will recover. You know, it's just going to be time. Eight weeks later, nothing was improving. At eight weeks, they then put me in a wheelchair and basically just shipped me off to Stoke Mandeville, which is a special spinal injuries hospital. I 
Then when I arrived there, I was not ready for, for that at all. That was my first ever experience of, you know, 150 patients all with spinal cord injuries. That broke me. And I wasn't ready to accept the disability. I wasn't ready to accept that I had a spinal cord injury. I just, I was like, how can this be? I walked into the surgery and now this has happened and I'll just get through the rehabilitation and find my way in life. So what would follow would be an horrendous two months in Stoke. I was driving myself into a very dark place and I wasn't aware of it. After two, two and a half months there, I, I went to a place called Neurokinics in London and Gatwick and do private rehabilitation. So I checked myself into a hotel in Crawley, went every day to rehab. I was doing five hours a day. You know, I was learning to walk and get off my walking stick. The whole time I was like, I'm going to ride for Great Britain again. I'm going to get do the Alps ride. I battled away for almost a year. And eventually you can't spend your whole life in rehab. I could have spent my whole life in Neurokinics just doing rehab. Um, so I thought, right, it's time to integrate myself back into into society. That's when I ended up discovering how bad, I guess, this had, this had hit me. I was getting knocked over, I was falling over in the street. I was a mess and the lowest I got to was lying in the shower in tears thinking I can't live like this. And then I went to a course and the psychologist was doing was doing the talk and he spoke about the Kruber-Ross stages of grief. And I sat in the audience looking at it and thought, wow, that, it was like my light bulb moment. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to rebuild myself and create another David Smith, I'm going to have to learn more than I've ever learned. I'm going to have to become a student of my body. And so I went and studied neurobiology. I started studying psychology. Uh, doing modules in neuroscience, understanding my injury, understanding how my mind worked. Had all those real difficult conversations with myself on who's David Smith again and what's his insecurities, what's his fears. I had to go through all these horrible demons and get rid of them all. So I had a blank canvas and then I could almost write my own story. I took ownership of myself and I thought, okay, from now on, I'm going to be in charge of my body and my thoughts. I'm not going to let any of these thoughts come in. And if they do come in, uh, I'm not going to let the seeds be planted in my mind. I'm a new person. I remember phoning British Cycling and saying, look, I need a passion. I need a purpose to live at the moment. I don't have a purpose anymore. I'm lost. So I started going up to Manchester every week, spending the weeks in Manchester, coming back to London at weekends. In November that year, I got back on the velodrome and, uh, and I raced and came away with a bronze medal. That bronze medal meant more to me than my gold in London. It was only a C1. It's an international race, but it's not of the standard of a World Cup. And there was no one really there, but that medal meant the world to me. And then I thought, this is great. I'm going to get back on. Tokyo's realistic. So I started to get on my training. Everything's going great. Go through the winter of 2017, and um, I arrived in Belgium in 2018 for my first World Cup race on the road. And it was a disastrous race. My bike broke on the first lap and I just kept going. And I wasn't going to get, a, a, I did not finish next to my name. So I finished the race way off. But I flung myself into training, 
And then we were about to go to Canada for a World Cup and I was due a scan. So I went up, had a scan and the surgeon was like, oh, the, the, the tumor's come back and it's pretty big. And I was like, come on. I was like, really? So this time I learned a lot more about neurobiology and I started to ask a lot more questions. Why am I not seeing oncology? Why is it only ever a neurosurgeon I'm seeing? Why have I not been referred? Why have I had no psychology support? Why have I never been referred to the sarcoma units? Why I want my notes. So I got my notes and there was all these referrals for three years to radiotherapy. Refer a patient to radiotherapy, refer a patient to radiotherapy. And these referrals never happened. I didn't even know these referrals had been put in. And I'm thinking, wow. Then there's like notes from radiotherapy saying there's no need to follow up this patient because there was a full removal made of the tumor in 2016. And I'm like, how, how can you say this about my life? This is my life. I asked a friend and they put me in touch with an, a retired brain surgeon called John Wilden. And I used to go and sit with John every day, working through all my notes, building a plan. You're going to have to debulk it and then go with radiation. And that's what all of my notes had said, but it never happened. And so I went into surgery in November in 2018. And I was in amazing shape. I'd just done a whole summer's training for riding for Great Britain, back from the Alps. And I went up to the nurse and I was like, oh, name's David Smith. I'm here to check in. And she remembers, she said, she's like, you don't look like one of our patients. And I was like, in a few days, I will. <laughs> and I remember sitting in, in the bed and I was like, God, here I am again. The first few surgeries, I, I kind of was taken all for granted. I, and I wasn't really immersed in the moment where now I was like, literally, I, it was like someone had given me like extra brain power. And I could see everything and hear everything. And I was really aware of what was going on. And I was in ICU for, oh, it was like a week. It felt like a month. It was hard. And I was in pain. I, I, there was two days I couldn't open my eyes. The pain was so bad, it was like someone was drilling a hole into the front of my head whilst hitting me on the back of the head with a golf club. I remember thinking to myself at one point, if I die now, I'll be happy. So that was a pretty horrendous experience. And then I got up into the, into the ward, started to learn to walk again. I spent the whole of December, January, basically flat out in my bed, couldn't move. And I remember lying, looking at my bike at the end of the bed and thinking, how, like, how am I going to do this again? This is, this is impossible. But my goal is to ride for Great Britain again. And I have that, it's so important to have that goal, to have something that you're clinging on to. Because if you have nothing to cling on to, then it's easy just to go, well, that's okay, I'll accept this and just, and then just exist. But for me, I don't want to live like that. But then I was like, how the hell am I going to get back on a bike? I'm, I'm so done in from nine years of this. And then one day I remember just thinking, you know what? Even just if I climb on the bike, let me just climb on it. So I climbed on it. And then two hours later, I climbed off it. I sat I pedaled for two hours. And I thought, okay, I can do this. I can do it. And I just slowly started to go to the pool, go to the gym. And then before I knew it, I was doing 10, 12 hours a week of rehab. I started to get feel normal, started to get back into shape, traveled up to Manchester, went and seen the guys at British Cycling, set some targets. And then I get the letter to go to radiotherapy. And I thought, fantastic. First day I turned up to the UCLH McMillan. I burst into tears. 
For nine years, it felt like I'd been at sea, drowning, head coming up a little bit, drowning, head coming up a little bit. Then all of a sudden, I'm in this building where everyone is trying to look after me. Everyone's saying, look, you don't have to research this. This is our job. We're going to look after you. The first doctor I seen gave me two hours of his time to explain about the condition I have, the tumor I have, the support I can get, all this stuff I didn't even know existed. Radiotherapy for everyone is different. You know, people tell you you shouldn't use the word fight or you've battled, but for everyone it's different. So the word fight in a tumor, for me, really resonates with my sport background. There's no right and wrong. It's just personalized to you and you deal with it the way you deal with it. For me, it was a fight. This is an opportunity to live. And then two weeks into your treatment, you start to feel symptoms. My symptoms were that I couldn't swallow. Then I lost my voice. I couldn't speak. I couldn't eat. And then six and a half weeks of this, every single day you're going there. Every single day you're you're getting the emotions of other people's cancers and you're lying on the machine and, and you're trying to visualize as the beams hit and you're visualizing the tumor shrinking. You're doing all your your mindfulness stuff, you're, you're staying in control, you're, you're just surviving, you're, you're holding on. I wouldn't say at that point you're winning or you're losing or anything, you're, you're just surviving to get through the treatment. It's the most bizarre process I think I've ever been through. Then you come to your very last session and you have to go. And then that brings to me where we are today, which is sleeping 14, 15 hours a day, feeling like I've just come out of surgery bank at ground zero again thinking how how the hell do I get back onto a bike how do I even get to the gym most days at the moment are a struggle just to have a shower I track my heart rate variability and that's been one of the greatest things I've done because the voice in my head is like get on the bike get on the bike you need to start suffering now and then there's this other voice in my head saying we can't do this we're, we're, we're finished and there's that little battle in your head, which would become extremely tiring and overwhelming. But the fact that I track my heart rate variability, that's removed those voices. Because every morning I can look at it and I can see that my body's trying to regenerate all the cells that have died. It gives me this moment of acceptance to say, okay, I'm not going to be hard on myself. I just need to relax, sleep. I have zero motivation to do anything, but I realize that's okay. And I think it's about saying to yourself, okay, this is okay. It's not going to be forever, but I need to find a place that my body can heal spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. And at that point, then I can ask a question, who's David Smith now? That story is just unreal to listen to in terms of the phenomenal capacity for resilience that he has what what kind of L for you is jumping out from that story he really identifies when he's going through the good times and the bad times and he's as determined with himself in relation to figuring out his own thoughts as he is in relation to his sport or his recovery. So his determination seems to extend in all directions. Mm. And if he can't get in control of his thoughts, he says, okay, I will study psychology. I will go to cognitive therapy. I will look for solutions until there are no more solutions available to me. 
going off and doing neurobiology and psychology. I know, I know. Amazing. Amazing. Extraordinary. You see it in lots of resilient people, this conscious decision to decide to think differently. I think he actually says, I decided to be in charge of my own body. That's something that I will definitely take with me from this story, for example, that thought that, okay, and this can be a conscious decision. I'm not just going to draw on this secret power I didn't know I had, that I'm going to decide to do this. Absolutely. And I think what I really like about him is in the same way as he trains his body physically, he's very open to the idea of training his mind and kind of the mind as a muscle and thinking about how he gets the best from that. I love how he identifies when he's in that really dark place, when he kind of hits his rock bottom and what he has to do then to rehab, not just his physical body, but his thought processes. And I think for me, what is just unreal is that moment he describes of being in ICU and he was on to spend eight weeks there before he goes to Stoke Mandeville. But even at that stage saying, I'm going to ride across the Alps on this very specific route and I'm going to start visualizing myself doing that. That was because he saw it on a poster. Yeah. And that's enough. He says, right, that's my goal. That's my next huge goal. And I just think that's amazing, isn't it? There's something that happens to to David that I think is particularly difficult, which is that you get through a problem and then just as you think you're back on Mm -hmm. track, you've got it sorted you get smacked in the face again and then you have to deal with the setback. And I think what really comes through is his ability to deal with repeated setbacks, Mm -hmm. which actually increase in intensity. They don't get easier, they get harder. So the the spinal surgery becomes more difficult and the the legacy of the surgery in terms of weakness and paralysis, uh, loss of function become greater. And I think what, what really resonated for me was that when he's unable to do physical stuff, he's in the depths of despond. As soon as he starts being able to do something physical, then he can see his way through it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he sets these extraordinary goals and he can actually see himself building up again. And he shows this remarkable ability to get back onto it and build up in that incremental way so he can get to his goal. And I think there just seems to be a real change in him once he starts to feel, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And, 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 he, and, the, and the trigger for that, I can, seems to be the physical exertion. He can see the light at the end of the tunnel. He uses the kind of idea of a timeline for suffering. So it's yeah. not always going to be as bad yeah. as it is right now. It's a really good motivator, actually. If you can think, this is it. It's at its worst and tomorrow it's going to be a little bit easier and the day after and the day after. And there's a link here to the concept of post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth is actually only been researched really in the last 20 or 30 years where, where people, when they go through periods of incredible difficulty or trauma or distress in their life, and you see this a lot in people who are diagnosed with cancer or, or have a life-threatening illness, mm-hmm. that actually it often recalibrates their their sort of their their sort of life uh, compass, if you like. They start to think about what's really important, what really matters. And some people, when they go through that recalibration, actually feel that it's been hugely beneficial because it's helped them identify what really really matters to them. So I think David actually thinking about this and looking at the the acceptance and then the future and thinking about who is this new David Smith, I think it can be a very healthy process. In this episode, we explored the question, how do you keep persevering in the face of continuous adversity? 
So for David, I'd like to spend some time picking out some of the key protective factors which he demonstrates linked to resilience. So he has experienced success in his life, which he can use to propel him forward. He demonstrates a really clear openness to learn and to try new things. He's got this fantastic ability to adapt and he also demonstrates really good cognitive control and good mind strategies and exercises. And finally, I think it's really important that he sees himself as a survivor rather than a victim. And this is very important in the face of adversity. The emotional roller coaster he's been on, and as he says, the demons he's had to address along the way, I don't think we should underestimate how difficult that's been. And he's had to really dig deep and work hard at that process. You know, you might have to actually make this conscious decision to decide to change things and the way that you cope with a situation. So I think we can all um, keep David in mind when we're in that space where we're not quite sure what we're going to do next, but we can decide that we're going to try and think differently, act differently, and really proactively try and do something about that. For me, one of the key takeaways that I think is really important for us all to think about is our self-awareness. He's always asking that question, who is David Smith? And I think that the power of doing that is that he's always reappraising and thinking forward with things. So how have I changed in response to the adversity that's come my way? What was it that I did that was helpful and how will I respond to this next time? And I think there's a lovely sense of growth and learning over the course of this story. So he's always using that past strength and resilience, learning from it and moving forwards. And as we've talked about, he's open to new ways. So if something doesn't work the way that it did before, what else can I do? What else can I learn that will enable me to respond more effectively or more robustly to this? So for me, it's all about self-awareness and asking yourself that question, who am I? How have my experiences changed me? And what can I draw on from past experience that I know will enable me to move forward and meet this challenge? One of the things that I think may have made him so resilient is that he has tolerance of distress. I think because he enjoyed the physical pain of his performances, I think that helped him to do two things. It helped him to deal with the pain and the suffering post-operatively, but I think it also helped him rehabilitate. In, in a way, because that became like his training. So I suppose the message for us, I think, for all of us, is that if we get distressed about being distressed, we get more distressed. I think being able to sit with distress, and this is uh, you know, the work around acceptance and commitment, it is as it is, but what can I do to take this forward? And I think there's a lot to be learned for all of us from that, that sort of philosophy. One of the key things that stands out from David's story is his capacity for optimism. Normally, when we're faced with and exposed to negative life events, we can develop a sense of learned helplessness where we lie down to things and we think, why bother? But in David's case, he demonstrates this amazing capacity to decide and choose a different path. He's got a very determined mindset and he commits to a different future for himself. The Resilient Road was brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Divine French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush, and featured David Smith. It was produced by Holly Aquilina. It was edited and sound designed by Eli Block, and the executive producer was Harry Watson.
For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, go to www.positivegroup.org.